start by reading a verse to you while you wait for me there in Acts 10. Let me read Acts 14.27 to you, and then I'll join you in Acts 10. Acts 14 verse 27 makes this statement. It says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And of course, uh, Paul and Barnabas returning after their missionary journey and seeing how God had started establishing churches among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. There are a lot of Bible references, a lot of things in the Old Testament that showed that that was going to happen, but that by and large was a bit of a mystery uh, up until it started developing. Acts chapter 10 is really where it, it really opened up. And uh, I want to speak to you this evening on the subject of the door to the Gentiles opens. We basically have a Gentile church. Scotty's a, a Jewish background. And so he's, uh, he's uh, much more so than we have. I think Erzabed has, has some Jewish ancestry. And uh, we have uh, a Hungarian Jew. Her name is Hungarian, isn't it? And uh, we have that. But most of us are Gentiles. And uh, we come from one, one uh, group or another of, of what would be Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Um, the fact that we are in church tonight here at Lighthouse Baptist and we have the gospel uh, as uh, Gentile people started back in what we're going to study tonight. And it is the first major time you have a Gentile specifically being dealt with with the gospel. There were others who had gotten saved prior to that. And, and there were those who had, were not part of Israel who had received Christ. But this is where God chose to establish what he was doing, how he was, he was going to take the gospel into all the world as they'd be scattered about. And I want to give you, uh, I want to give you some of these things with this. I, uh, I'm going to go down through Acts 10 and give you some highlights from it. And uh, we'll be there in just a minute. But uh, let me pray with you and then we're going to go to one other verse together. And uh, when, after we're done there, we'll come back to Acts 10. Father, thank you for your word. Help me to teach it clearly tonight. Certainly, uh, wealth of things to teach from this. And I would ask that I would have a sense of your guiding as what to give it emphasis to, proper time to as I go through. And uh, may you reward the people for their time of coming to church by feeding them well tonight out of your word. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go while you keep your place there, and I'm going to keep mine there. Uh, in, in Acts 10, go to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. I use the word as I began to say uh, part of the mystery of the way that, the, uh, uh, that was unraveled, the, that was kind of a mystery of the Old Testament uh, when it would talk about the Gentiles and those who were not a nation becoming a nation and all this. And it was made clear later on. I chose that word uh, purposefully because of what's written in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Look at this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now look what it says. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. It's incarnation. Justified in the Spirit seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And so when the Bible enumerates what great is the mystery of godliness, a dual aspect of that is that it was preached unto the Gentiles and it was believed on in the world. 
the entire world. And so what happens is uh, there was a transition time. The, the Israelites were dealt with first. To them were committed the oracles of God. The Bible says, While prophet then hath the Jew much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God, that which was written of God, God's Word. When Jesus Christ came and the living Word came in fulfillment of the written Word, and He gave Himself, Israel, part of the Bible says they were blinded because of their own self-righteousness. They going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They did not try to establish their own righteousness by inventing a new religion like Joseph Smith did when he founded the Mormon cult or Charles Taz Russell did when he, when he uh, founded the Jehovah's Witness cult. They did not try to invent a new religion. That's not what they did. What they were trying to do was establish their own righteousness by the keeping of the law. The keeping of the law could never establish righteousness in God's eyes because man never completely kept it. And the hypocrisy of man showed up very distinctly because they were proud of keeping the law even though they knew that they were breaking parts of it. In fact, so fallen is our nature that when God gave His perfect law, He built in the law sacrifices to deal with man's fallen nature when he fell short of the very law he'd just given. Then Jesus came. The final sacrifice was made. Veil in the temple, rent in twain. He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. He's our temple. He is everything. And now we believe on Him. And what ends up happening, that news went out and it went to the Jews first. When the, when the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit was given in the, on the day of Pentecost, when this had happened, there were Jews, devout men from under every nation under heaven were gathered there for the Feast of 50, Pentecost. And there they heard the Gospel when Jesus, uh, the Lord turned back, uh, as it were, uh, the, uh, the hands of uh, what happened at the Tower of Babel. And He allowed these different languages all to hear the message from those who were Galileans. And then the Gospel went back with those men to these various and, and sundry nations to which they, uh, from which they'd come. And God started this thing. And so I want you to understand that this mystery began, that we begin to understand that opens up in Acts 10, was a mystery that was spoken of there in, in Timothy. And it's a mystery that God had shown, that thank God that the mercy of God would be shown unto the world through Jesus Christ. And uh, thank God for it. And so with all that in mind, let's look in Acts chapter 10. And don't be scared by the size of the chapter and the predilications of your pastor to be long in speaking. Because I, I, I will make you a promise. I don't often do that. I will make you a promise. I will not preach one minute past when I'm done tonight. Okay? <laughs> now, whether you still remain in your seats at that time or not, has yet to be seen. But no, I, I really don't. I have fun with you about that, but I don't target certain time other than not to be wearisome because uh, uh, Spurgeon used to say the mind cannot retain what the seat cannot bear. And uh, probably good wisdom for all us preachers. Uh, Acts chapter 10 says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. I looked him up. I said, ah, I wonder what, centur- what Cornelius' name means. You ready? It means Cornelius. <laughs> there you are. Um, kind of funny. Some of them don't have a lot of uh, definition you can actually find that's substantive with it. 
But he was in a place called Caesarea. Now, get some of the background of what was happening here because if you want to look at how God opened the door to the Gentiles and started opening this up, he did it in a very Gentile place with a very Gentile person. And I'm not saying gentle, I'm saying Gentile. He was, he's of the Gentiles. Caesarea was thus named after August, Augustus Caesar. And uh, it, is, it is a place that often was the ordinary residence of the Roman governor of the time or the proconsul, those who were ruling in that area. I'll not go into all detail of that. Acts 23, 23 tells you about that. And as does Acts 25, verse 6. It was the seat of political authority for that area. So that's what Caesarea was. And so here he was, and it was named in honor of Augustus Caesarea. It was, it was rebuilt to a prominence underneath Herod the king. It had fallen to some despair and it was rebuilt. And, uh, and so this is the area where this man was. And so he, he is there in Caesarea. And then next thing we run into, look at, the, look at the rest of the verse. It says there was a man, a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, and that's a man who's over 100 soldiers. He's a, of a man of some authority, some political clout. And uh, what is, that? Is, that, is that a major in our, uh, would that be comparable to a major in our armed forces? What would it be? Captain. Okay, that'd be a captain level with that. And so he would exert uh, some force in whatever town in which he resided. He has a hundred soldiers garrisoned there with him. That The way that the Romans set things up, they would put their soldiers in different towns to, to keep law and order with whatever goes on. We could use those in a couple of our cities. Uh, and uh, it says he got named called Cornelius a centurion. His man was over a hundred soldiers. Of the band called the Italian band. Now that's not somebody who plays while you eat pizza. That's that's the name of the particular group over which he had authority. Now it's interesting. He, they're in Caesarea, which was usually the seat of the Roman governor or proconsulate, and they also this Italian band. Uh, they they were Romans. They were all Romans. They were not conscripts. They were not people who had bought into the Roman army. They were, they were Romans. Why? Because they were to be very, very ethnically pure. Why? Because that band of soldiers was in the town where the Roman governor usually was. And now whether they would serve as bodyguard for him or not, I don't know. If you read those passages later in Acts 23 and Acts 25 I told you about, you'll see that there's a lot of activity of soldiers and political things going on in that town. And so, uh, what's the town? You tell me, we'll pass the test, we'll go home quicker. What town? Are you very good with that? And uh, we're there. Now, what is the centurion's name? It's what? Cornelius, Cornelius all right? And Cornelius is the, uh, is the man who the, this door of the Gentiles will open for. Now, let's, let's look at this. It's interesting. Look in verse 2 and verse 22. We find out a couple things about Cornelius. He's described in these two verses. Look in verse 2. A devout man and one that feared God. Devout means he was very serious about his worship and that. He feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, he's not a saved man, but he's a man who believes in the living God. But he doesn't know about the crucifixion. He doesn't know the gospel yet, but yet he believes in the living God. God's going to honor that. Look in verse 22. It tells more about him there. And they said, these are the men that uh, Cornelius sends, and they said, Cornelius the centurion. Now these are his men. These are two of his household servants and a soldier. Two of his devout household servants and one of his soldiers go on an errand for him. 
And here's what they say about their master when they get to where they're going. And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee. They're talking to uh, Peter when they say that. Into his house and to hear words of thee. So the men that he sent said, let me tell you about our boss. He's a just man. This, this man's good. And uh, he's, he's, he's serious about what he's doing. And by the way, he's, a, he's, a, he's of the Italian band. He's a Gentile through and through. And not just that, he's a Roman soldier. I don't know whether you understand this or not. The Jewish nation did not think a lot of the Roman soldiers. They were an army of occupation and the Jews were allowed to operate within certain boundaries their own government, but they were under the thumb of the, of the Romans at the time and they, were, they hated that Roman army. They hated their being uh, the Roman legions uh, garrisoned in their different cities and all that sort of thing. They didn't like that at all. They didn't like the Gentile dogs being on their soil and this going on. This was not a happy thing for them. And yet these men come and say, well, tell you about, uh, tell you about Cornelius. Not only is he a just man, and these two household servants and a soldier, these are people who work for him. They said, but also the Jewish nation loves him. He's always doing something for them. Why? Because he fears the living God. He's not a descendant physically of Abraham, but boy, he was a descendant of Abraham's faith, wasn't he? He believed in the living God. And so here he is, and, uh, and, and so they tell that about him. I put this about him. This is an interesting statement. Um, I was reading some different things on and Matthew Henry observed that Cornelius was both a good man and a great man. In other words, he was morally good and he also had stature about him. He had, he had greatness about him. Here's, here's the thing he said. He observed, uh, Matthew Henry did, that goodness and greatness seldom meet in the same person. But when they do, they add a luster one to another. Then he wisely made this statement, and I loved it. I said, I want to give this to you all tonight. He made this statement. He said, goodness makes greatness truly valuable. And greatness makes goodness much more serviceable. Goodness makes greatness truly valuable. And greatness makes goodness more serviceable. In other words, it takes goodness. There's some people who are morally good, but they, they, they don't, can't get a lot done. This fellow had both in him. He had risen to a level where he had influence and was using that influence for good. Well, that's a rare combination, isn't it, in our world? And so, it's Cornelius had that. So, we have a town called what? Caesarea. Caesarea. You are going to get to go earlier than this side. You were quicker. All right. And then uh, we have the fellow there that's the Roman centurion. His name is what? Cornelius. All right, everybody wants to go home together. All right, there we go. All right, and then we learn about him. Was Cornelius, was he a, was he a good, upright man? Yes. yes, he was. Was he a religious man? Yes. yes, he was. Okay, and so we'll find out some more about him here. Let's see what happens. Then verse 3, And he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day. Now think, you do not have watches and such and uh, you, with that. And so the time was broken down. Uh, a little differently in its explanation and understanding. And basically, uh, the, the, uh, uh, in the New Testament, the ninth hour of the day equates out to between 12 and 3 p.m., between noon and 3 p.m. That section of time about there is what they would call the ninth hour of the day. And so Cornelius, he sees a vision. What is this vision? In the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, now watch his reaction. And when he looked on him, he was afraid. 
say, no, I'd be so happy. Now, everybody who saw one of these, it, will, it made them afraid. Hey, look, some, some, some angel walks in your house. You go, yeah, all right. And said, what is it, Lord? And we understand from this. He's you know, saying, okay, what do I need to do here? Submission in that. And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up as a what? Memorial. Memorial where? Before. Before God. Remember, he's a devout man and he's called out to the Lord. And God, said, God takes memory of him here. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now hold on. You reckon the angel knew who the Savior was? Sure. You reckon the angel knew why Jesus had come to this earth? Of course he knew. Why didn't the angel just tell him about Jesus? It's a very simple answer. Angels were never commissioned to tell men about Jesus. Guess whose job it is to tell, tell mankind about Jesus? It's our, us, believers. Are you, are, you, are you saved tonight? Yeah. All right. If you're saved tonight, then you're also somebody that it's your commission to tell people about the Savior. It's not the angel's job. It's us. We who have felt the bitter sting of sin, and we who have felt the great joy of redemption, and knowing it's through Christ, we are to go tell others of what God's done for us. And uh, so that's what we're supposed to do. And so look what happens there. He says to send them down. Now look in verse 5. We have one city already. What was our first city we learned about? Was what? Caesarea, very good. And then here we have another city. What is the city named in verse 5? Joppa, okay? Now, Joppa is interesting. That is the port city where a fellow named Hiram sent floats of wood from Lebanon to be sent there. At that point at Joppa, they were taken out of the sea, transported to Jerusalem for the building of Solomon's temple. That's where it came in, according to the Scripture. They were sent in there, and that's where he'd sent them. Later in history, after that temple had been destroyed uh, with Nebuchadnezzar coming through and such things, the temple was rebuilt the second time under Zerubbabel. When the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, that port city of Joppa, where these men are being sent, once again saw the cedars of Lebanon being floated in, just like you'd think about you know, how we, uh, they send timbers down rivers and such in our country. But they would float them there from Lebanon, and again, they were transported overland for the rebuilding of the temple. Joppa is also the port city where a very reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah went when he was supposed to go to a very wicked very anti-Jewish city by the name of Nineveh and preach, but Jonah didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites and he didn't want them to get saved. If you don't believe that, read the book of Jonah. Because when they repent and God, God, God says He's going to have mercy, Jonah sets up and pouts over it and says, I knew you were going to do that. And so what happened? He went down to Joppa to flee from the presence of the Lord. And then he got on a ship heading for Tarshish. And, by the way, in a very telling phrase, he paid the fare thereof. Anytime you want to run from the will of God, you can find a ship. And you can justify going because the circumstances came together for you to be disobedient. But you listen well to the preacher. You're going to pay the fare. Before it was over... He'd find out he'd have one of the world's first submarine rides. And uh, 
find out what that's like. He'd also find out what it'd like, be like to be the most active chunk in whale vomit. And he would end up on the shore in not such good shape. Well, Joppa had a lot of activity, didn't it? Now Joppa has a, uh, has a fellow named Simon Peter staying there. And by the way, this is interesting. The Lord's going to deal with Peter and show him that the Gentiles need the gospel also. But Peter right now is dwelling with someone that puts him in a connection of something that's very dicey and questionable for a Jewish man. He is at the, he's at the place of Simon the Tanner. You know what the Tanner does? No, he didn't have little electronic beds for people to give themselves skin cancer. <laughs> he's tanning hides. Do you, and that's why he's by the seashore. Of course, you have the saline solution and, and all that to do that. Which that means he's in constant contact with dead bodies. Carcasses and such. Now, why was Peter in the town of Joppa? Because he had been in the town of Lydia at the end of Acts chapter 9. And in the town of Lydia, he, he, there God had done miracles. And Peter had been preaching. People had been getting saved. And the lady, there was a lady, Lydia and Joppa right, right by each other. And there was a lady in Joppa by the name of Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Tabitha got sick and she died. They called for Peter when they found out he was right in the next town. They called for Peter after she was dead. He comes over, and when he comes in, Tabitha's laying there dead. People are wailing and mourning over her. People are showing the garment she, she made. Apparently, Tabitha was a, a seamstress and such, and she had done things to bless people. And Peter sets them all out of the room and says to, the, uh, uh, to Tabitha, made arise, calls her by name, Tabitha, arise. And when she does, God puts life back in her. And she raises up. And then she gets something to eat. Check out the resurrection in the Bible. They always go eat after they get resurrected. I don't know what it is. Something about dying must make you hungry. I mean, every one of them does, seriously. Check it out sometime. And so what happens, she's raised from the dead. There's great wonderment the gospel goes out in power and lo and behold, Peter stays there ministering to those people and here he is. You've got a lot of different things going on at once here. You have Peter over here and this great things happened with Tabitha and yet over here uh, in Caesarea, you have, uh, uh, you have Cornelius who is uh, angelic visitors come to his house and said, you need to go call for Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's there with a bunch of people and the revival's going on. But God says, you go ask him and he'll tell you what you need to do next. So let's pick up the rest of the account. We had a first city. What's it called? Caesarea. Our second city is called what? Joppa. Joppa. And uh, then we have Simon Peter staying at Simon the what? Yeah. You're listening very well. And who's our main, our main person in this is Cornelius. All right. You all are doing well today. All right. So let's see what happened. Uh, verse 7. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants, I've told you about that already, and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. I love that. He didn't just tell them, uh, Jeff, he didn't just say, you, now you go do what I tell you to do. He brought them in on it. And you're going to find out there's something about this fellow. It's, it seems to be how he deals with those he deals with. He's, he brings them in. He says, let me tell you what just happened here. And by the way, they didn't say, oh, the boss has lost it. Wow. wow. No, they, they take this very seriously. They say, our boss seeks God so much. When he tells us the Lord told him something, we're going to listen to it. 
And that's um. And I understand they were under obligation to I said they were household servants and the soldier. I understand that. I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying you don't see a spirit of people who are being forced to do something in the way they go about this. So let's see what happens next with this, if you will. Um, in uh, in verse nine, on the morrow as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now Peter is not lost. It. It was very common for people to be up on the housetop. More of a flat roof, perhaps a little bit of a slant to it. There would be there would be uh, things planted on the roofs at times. It was a common place for people to go. If you check the books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, you even find laws, Jewish laws, what happens if your cow falls off the roof? Masa, it's in there. Now I don't know about y'all. If I had a cow on the roof, I'd be worried about some things. <laughs> the falling cow would be only one of them. Amen. So this time, the sixth hour is between 9 a.m. and midday. So Cornelius saw his vision sometime like between noon and 3 o'clock. And now Peter, this is happening as they're getting up towards the, the midday hour. And so he went up to pray about the sixth hour and he became very hungry. So look what you have combined here. He's is, is very hungry. He's going to pray. He, he said, why did he go up on the roof? Probably be by himself. He went to go talk to the Lord. He gets real hungry while he goes. And would have eaten. Peter's a very practical man. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And saw heaven opened. Well, that guy's attention. And a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet, knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. It's like a picnic spread. Comes down. Look what happens with it. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And then here's a good vegan verse. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> Lord spread, that's the Lord talking, not me, right? But Peter said, Not so, Lord. Isn't that a contradiction term? But it's not the first time Peter ever said something like that either. If he's the Lord, you don't say not so. And if you say not so, he's not your Lord. Not so, Lord. Okay, there you go. Not so, Lord, and for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, there was a man who was a commercial fisherman. You don't think he ever caught shrimp or something? You don't think he ever did, but he didn't eat it. He was very careful with this. Don't you think because old Peter was impetuous about things and because sometimes he went running ahead and it was like it had a V8 engine and no steering wheel attached to it, uh, don't you think for a minute he wasn't serious about what he believed? He was serious about what he believed. And uh, he said, I've never done that. God puts it out there and he got everything, everything imagined out there. And he says, kill me. Get whatever you want off this. Got, got a buffet open, you know. And uh, Peter says, No. Uh-uh, all my life. Now, Peter's not a 20-year-old man. He said, I've never, ever eaten something that is this common or unclean. He said, I am not going to do that. He said, that's not something I've ever done. Then, God gives him a very specific answer there in verse 15. And the voice spake unto him, again the second time, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. He said, Peter, if I cleaned it, you don't call it common. Now, there's a, big, there's a big continuation here. I defer to use the word shift or pivot because it isn't. It's a continuation of what God had been doing the whole time. 
which is getting the gospel out into all the world. The shift or pivot only happens in where the focus is going now. The Jews received the gospel first. But now, as the Jews, many of them had believed, but a good number of that nation have rejected him. And so the Gentiles are going to receive the gospel. And, and Cornelius is the first fruits of those Gentiles coming under the influence of the gospel. So he shows him this. And uh, so he's, uh, uh, this goes on. This will be troubling to his mind. And then look what happens. Verse 16. This was done thrice. So three times he watches this happen. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. So he's sitting there. He's hungry. The thing comes down, opens up, and he sees all this, and the voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. What are you talking about there? Man, that's, that's something I'm not allowed to eat. And uh, he said, I've never done that. God said, What I have cleansed, call thou not common. By the way, there'll be, a, there'll be a verse later in the New Testament as the gospel's going out, and they're going into some pretty rough areas of the world saying to eat that which is in the shambles, asking nothing for conscience sake. But then warning, if somebody came to the, the believers and said, this was sacrificed to an idol, that you, don't, you, you defer to eat it. And it says, even in that verse, it says, forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, it's not going to hurt you, but you're going to wound the conscience of that person because you have, you have knowledge of the idol. Somebody says, oh, this is, really good. this is really good roast beef. We dedicated it to Zeus. You're supposed to say, no. Hey, read it. It's New Testament. Zeus moose, who cares what's dedicated to? Did you cook it good? God said, it's not going to hurt you. That's not the issue. He said, but because that person said this was dedicated to Zeus, you back off and don't do that. So they understand there's a clear line of distinction between their false God and the, and the living Savior. Would to God that we focus more on our responsibilities than our rights as Christians. And quit damaging people in the name of supposed freedom. And so what he says here, he, he, he says, you're going to do this, and then it's taken up. How many times did, did he see this? How many times did it happen? Three. Three times, okay? So let's review. The first city we found about was what? Caesarea. There was a band there called the what band? Italian, Italian band. And the head of that was a, a centurion named what? Caesar. Cornelius. Not Caesar. All right, he came with the salad later. The, uh, um, Cornelius uh, was the centurion over that. And then there's a second city we found about, which, which was what? Joppa, and uh, there was Simon Peter, and he was stayed at the house one Simon the what? By the way, what was the name of the young maiden that was raised back to life? Second name? Which would you choose? Tabitha. All right, there. And so, see what happens. Let's see what happens next, all right? So he goes, and how many times was this, uh, was this sheet let down and taken back up? How many? So what happens with that, let's review Cornelius sent how many men to go talk to Peter? Three. Three. Cornelius is a very Gentile Gentile. Peter is a very Jewish Jew. In fact, Peter will become the apostle to the Jews. Paul will become an apostle to the Gentiles. Isn't it amazing that God will take the man who will become the apostle to the Jews and has him there when the Gentile door is opened all the way? And then he'll give report back to the Jewish church. And by the way, you're going to be a, see a sign given that is a duplication of a sign that was given at, at Pentecost so that God is validating, saying this is the same thing that happened. 
In other words, every Gentile who gets saved gets saved the exact same way that every Jew gets saved. And every Jew that gets saved gets saved the exact same way every Gentile gets saved. That's through the blood of Christ. The Bible says there's a common salvation and it's the blood of Christ that saves all of us. You're either saved by His blood or you're not saved at all. As Brother Roloff used to say, you either a saint or you ain't. Amen? And that's the truth of that. So let's see what happens here. He, he sees this. It happens three times. It goes, goes with that. Then, verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. He can't figure it out. He's like, oh, what is this about? Behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So they got there to Joppa and they started asking around, saying, hey, we're looking for Simon the Tanner. Okay, he lives down here and you turn down, go down this way. And so they get there and uh, uh, they, uh, they, they are at the gate and, and Peter's up there saying, what was this and why did I see it three times? And you know, what's this all about? He's trying to figure it out. So they're out at the gate and called. There's no doorbell. So they call, hey, hollered, hey. Hollered a few people in there. He's up on the roof, you know. And called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. So they come up and say, hey, 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 somebody in there. Yeah, look up. Hey, Simon Peter staying here? Simon's up on the roof. And they're looking for that. Verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. There's somebody looking for you. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. These are Gentiles. We probably won't get this far with the account tonight, but later on when Peter is recounting this, he said and, and indicates the Jews were not supposed to come into the, the dwellings of the Gentiles and such. And yet God had just told him, I've got these, some men here to see you. Go with them. No doubting. Don't argue about it. Just, just go. I want you to go with them when they get there. Verse, uh, uh, look in uh, da, 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 verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? He said, I'm who you're looking for. And they said, Cornelius. This verse I read you earlier to explain a little bit about him. The centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. Remember, the angel didn't tell Cornelius the gospel. That's the job for men to do. Then called he them in and lodged them. Everybody's staying at Simon's house. And on the morrow, what was that? <laughs> All right, sure, why not? Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied them. By the way, six men went with him. You can find that in Acts 11, verse 12 tells you that. Six men went with Peter. So here you have the three that came from, from Cornelius. And here you have a total of seven going back with them. Why six men with him? As a witness? I don't know. To be a part of what's going on? I don't know. Safety measure? You know, Gentiles standing for you. What's going on? I don't know. don't know all the motive. I just know they went. And so there they went. And uh, kind of interesting for those who like to study numbers. I'm not really big into numerology. Six, six we do know is the number of man because that's laid out in Revelation with the 666. And so uh, here we go. God's going to do something for all mankind right here. By the way, let me drop this on you. God prepares both ends of the thing. He prepared Peter with a vision and He prepared Cornelius with an angel. 
So God's working both ends of this. He's getting Cornelius ready. He says, I'm going to send, uh, you send for somebody, he's going to come tell you what you need to hear. And on the other end, he's getting Peter ready for when these men show up. Uh, I wonder who he's preparing you to help. I wonder who that one out there, and, and they're going along, and you're the one who's going to be able to help them. And God's preparing it from both ends. You can't see that because we don't get to see both ends. But He does. I wonder who He's preparing you to help. I wonder who that heartache uh, is for that you, you bear. You say, well, God delights in the heartache. No, but He delights in taking even that which is hurtful and using it for His good. I wonder who you'll be able to help if you just stay true to the Lord. I wonder who you'll be able to lift from being weak yourself. God's preparing it from both ends. From both ends. Boy, that's important. You ought to get that. I love this little statement. Listen to this quotation I got. God always prepares us for what He prepares for us. I'll say it again. God always prepares us for what He prepares for us. And Boy, there's comfort in that. It's interesting. Let's see what happens next here with it, all right? And we're going down. They're going, they're going to go back to that original city, which was the city of what? Caesarea, all right? You're, you're trailing off at the end here, class, all right? Do you need your milk and cookies time? All right. Look, look in verse 24. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea and Cornelius waited for them. Now hold on a minute. Look what's happening at Cornelius' house. He waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. He believed what God said. He said, God told me to go send for somebody and I'm going to have this place packed when he gets here. Cornelius gets them all in there. <laughs> We're going to hear something. Who is it? God told me to send for somebody. Came Simon Peter. The Jews knew who he was. I know he's a, he's a, he's a Gentile centurion. Huh? But man, he's, he's going to come tell us something. I sent the men. Now, they've been gone a couple days. You know, they've got to get over there and get back. It's not a super long trip, but they'll traveling, starting a little late, and then coming back. And by the way, Peter was probably still hungry. He wanted to eat something before he left. And so, you know, they're like, man, uh, what is it? I don't know. All my kinsmen. Isn't that something? Here a man is, doesn't yet know the gospel, but he got word that God was going to let him know something that was what he needed to know, and he wanted to get his whole family to be able to hear it. Oh my, wish that desire burned in all of our hearts for our family to hear. And so here's what he says. He, he comes in and, and he's, he's got them together. Peter comes in, there's all these people. Now think how strange this is. Peter's a Jewish man. He's been seeing this vision and now God's got him following these Jewish or these Gentile people back to a Roman centurion. And here he comes in and the place is packed. Just, wow. What in the world's going on with this? Then look what happens. Verse 25. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Cornelius didn't know. This is the one. Boy, he hits the ground, doesn't he? Look at Peter's response to that. And uh, fell down and worshipped him. Verse 26. But Peter took him up. In other words, he didn't just let him do it. He reaches down and he's like, hey, 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 what are you doing? He, and he took him up saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. He said, get up. He said, I'm a man also. Interesting, Peter would not allow himself to be worshipped in verses 25 and 26. Paul and, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they wouldn't allow themselves to be worshipped when they went out and men tried to do it. They would never allow themselves to be worshipped at all. None of the men of God would ever allow themselves to be worshipped. But listen to this, Jesus always allowed people to worship Him. Why? Because He's God in the flesh. 
From where he is worshipped at the age of two years old by the wise men in Matthew chapter 2 until he is worshipped by, I quote here, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, as well as the four beasts and four twenty elders around the throne of glory in Revelation chapter 5 from Bethlehem's, the house in Bethlehem when he was two years old up till the throne of glory in Revelation 5. There are eight different specific times Jesus has worshipped. He's worshipped as He walked as a man on this earth. And every time, Brother Keith, He let them worship Him. You know why? That's God you're dealing with. That's not just man. And so a lot to be learned from that too. There's just so much in here that you pick up along the way. So let's see what happens here, all right? And I'm kind of curious about it myself. I want to see it. So let's see what happens. And, uh, and so he gets him up. Verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. Now, Cornelius was a centurion. He probably had a pretty decent-sized house. And he's got them packed in there. And he said unto them, here, listen to this opening statement. I love it. You know that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. He walks in among the Gentiles. He says, y'all do know I'm not supposed to be here. I'm a Jew. And I'm not supposed to be with you. All right? And so there he is. And he tells them that. And, uh, but God, and it's all, that's always it, but God, Amen. has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, I reckon probably we shouldn't refer to people as trash, should we? How about if we start to change our mind to looking at it and saying, you know, Someone created in the image of God shouldn't live that way. You do know the classic definition of self-righteousness. It's in the Bible. He trusted that himself was righteous and despised others. Despising others is a sign of self-righteousness. We can look squarely at wrong behavior and sin and call it what it is and call it out like it is without thinking that they're doing that because they're trash and we're something better. There's a common place for all of us if we're not saved and it's called hell. There's a common agent that cleanses us all from all sin. It's called the blood of Christ. We need to keep it in mind. Look what happens here. He says, I'm not even supposed to be here, but look what happens. Verse 29, Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying. He said, I didn't argue with it. As soon as I was sent for, I ask therefore for what intent you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, and he starts talking. Been four days hence now with the travel and what was going on. He tells about what's happening. He was fasting. He was praying and all that going on. And then look in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. By the way, the level of acceptance here with Cornelius was to allow him to hear the gospel. Then he had to do something with that. Look what happens with it. Verse 36, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He's Lord of the Jew. He's Lord of the Gentile. He's Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began, began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with Him. 
And we are His witnesses, just like Jesus had said, you'll be witnesses unto Me, of all things which He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed Him openly. Not to, uh, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is He which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To Him give all the prophets witness, give all the prophets witness that through His name, whosoever believeth in Him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Remember those six Jews following Peter over there? And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? That these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. It's interesting. This sign was actually given for the Jews. And that's consistent with what God did all the way back to the time of Moses. The sign was given for the Jews. It always was, and it confirmed His Word. Until His Word would come with power, and there was no more need for the sign. And then it would go forth with the Word. We have a complete canon of Scripture now. You have what they did not have, which is a complete Bible. But the Jews always were dealt with with signs. He did it with Moses, the deliverer. He did it with the giving of the law. He did it with the, when Joshua came into the land. He did it with the prophets. You say, wait a minute, these were Gentiles. But the, was the, the sign of that was not for the Gentiles. It was for the Jews. Why? It was for Peter and the six that were with him. And then, if you keep reading and you were to go on, they go back to Jerusalem and say, let, let, let's tell you what happened at Cornelius' house. And the pivotal point of the Jew, Jewish church understanding it is when they say the same thing happened there that happened to us at Pentecost. Remember Pentecost? Tongues, languages, get inter the words back and forth so you know what it is. And so what ends up happening there, they said the exact thing happened, exact salvation, the common salvation that God's given for the Jew and for the Gentile. Oh, listen to me, friend. They'll give you a practical application of it. You go out witnessing somebody and somebody says, I'm a Catholic. You say, what do I do different with them? You don't do anything different with them. You speak kindly to them. Tell them about salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, if you know something about the different things, it can be helpful for your conversation. I remember when Brother Hill was here soul winning years ago and at like six different houses and we were over on Greylock Street and like six different houses row, we, we met all these six different churches people went to and some of them not mainline denominations and I got to talk with each of them about what they believed and led into the gospel with it, you know? One fellow was a Lutheran man. He was from a mainline denomination. And I said, do you know why Luther broke with the Catholic Church with the main thing was? He goes, well, we taught at catechism, but I don't really know. I said, it had to do with solo scripture, the scripture only, and what he read at 26 years old was this statement, the just shall live by faith. Do you think you could go into a gospel presentation from that? And so we talked about these things. And then the next one was somebody else. And Brother Hill looked at me the way he did. He says, well, then he says, I, I can barely figure out what I believe sometimes. How do you know every ism and schism we run into? And I said, Brother Hill, go soul in here in the streets of Lancaster enough years, you're going to meet every ism and schism there is alive. So you don't have to be smart, it's just repetition. You know? I recognize that. I've run into that one before. Do you know 
What a Catholic person needs to be saved? They need the same thing a Baptist person needs to be saved. Or an atheist, so-called, needs to be saved. Or an agnostic needs to be, uh, be saved. Or a Muslim needs to be saved. Or anybody else needs to be saved. They need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what happened. This common salvation goes out. So, so the same thing's appropriate for anybody we meet. Kindness is appropriate. A clear presentation of the Gospel is appropriate. And caring about their soul is very appropriate no matter who it is. And so Peter's brought in here. And the Word's given out. And what happens? Cornelius... Can you imagine how happy he was? Here's a fellow. He, he, he was a devout man. He believed in the living God. And he was a Gentile in the occupying army of the Romans. And, 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 and yet he, he, he took care of the Jews. He gave offerings to them. All that sort of thing. He fasted. His workers knew he was a man who believed in God. And then one day God said, I'm going to show you the truth has come. I'm going to show you about it. Send for a man named Peter. And Peter's over there. And he sees this vision and says, what in the world does this mean? And then three men down there at the gate. Hey! Anybody Peter named here? Both of them stick their head out. No, Simon Peter. Oh, he's up there. I'm down here. I'm, I'm, I'm Simon the Tanner. And he said, okay. He said, our, our, our boss sent for you. And he said, I'm a Jew. No, I'm not supposed to go. Well, let me see. One, two, three. One, two, three. Don't call him common. I'm coming. Hey, I need some folks to go with me. Six of them go with him. They get over there, open the door, Cornelius falls down, getting by feet, tries to worship him. Oh, 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 whoa, whoa. No, no, don't do that. We're here to worship God. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. And when he does that, this whole crowd getting together said, That's what we've been looking for. That's what we've been looking for. And they get saved. And I'll tell you what, this church has started being planted, people start being reached. Here we are in 2020. In the church tonight with the Word of God because God cared enough to send the Gospel into all the world. It would be a great thing if we partnered with Him and did what He once done, wouldn't it? Amen. Let me pray with you tonight. Father, thank You for this great Bible account and Your mercy evidence through it. May we please be people who show it to others. Thank You for loving us. Thank You. I'm glad You sent the Gospel out to a hayfield in southwestern Ohio so I could hear it. Thank you for faithful witnesses. I pray you'll help us to be among those, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together tonight. Something you want to bring before the Lord. And if tonight you're here and don't know Christ as your Savior, Christ sent His Gospel out for you, my friend. There's no reason for you to leave here tonight and not saved. Why don't you come tonight as we have a song invitation together.